Meanwhile, in Justice League International, annual number three. Welcome to the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This episode is another of our Meanwhile episodes. In these Meanwhile episodes, we break from the usual numbered issues to provide a chance to look at the JLI outside of the ongoing monthly series. In this case, we're going to be covering another one of the annuals. By the way, uh, in case you weren't aware, my name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I am your host, but I am not flying solo. You're so lucky. Uh, every single episode, I invite a guest along to help me cover the issue at hand. Today's guest is a fellow Floridian, or Floridiot, as we're officially called, and he's also no stranger to podcasting. Impressively, his podcast has recently broke the 100-episode mark. However, given the subject matter, he's just one snap away from half of those episodes vanishing. Folks, please help me welcome one of the hosts of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, Mr. Al Sedano. Welcome to the Embassy, Al. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? Thanks, Shag. I'm good. It's nice to talk about something that doesn't involve heavy metaphysics and time travel all the time. <laughs> Give my brain a chance to rest. You picked like such an obscure thing that no one in, I mean, I do stuff on Firestorm and Justice League. Those are pretty mainstream compared to covering something like Thanos. I mean, gosh, man, what a niche. Yeah, it's so <laughs> tiny. Although, to be fair, it really wasn't that big when it first started. I don't think Guardians was even out yet. Right, I know. I remember when you guys started the thing, it was very much a, a niche sort of thing. Yeah, way to tap into that zeitgeist, brother. It was even supposed to be just Adam Warlock. It's just, well, you really can't do that without Thanos. He's almost always there anyway. That's true. That's true. Since this whole Jim Starlin verse, kind of thing with Warlock and Thanos. I always lump Captain Marvel in there. I, and I apologize if you don't feel like that's part of that, you know, bailiwick, but it seems like it to me. So I want to ask you, because I'm a Firestorm fan, Captain Marvel with Rick Jones in his head, have you ever spent time thinking about the comparisons of Firestorm in that? A little bit, yeah. There is some similarity, unfortunately, for your guy. This one did come first. Absolutely true. No denying that. It's the reverse. You know, it's the young kid in the older guy's head. Yes, exactly. It does kind of make it a nice little comparison to it, but it's a nice little reverse yeah. And Jerry Conway's always said that, you know, he was a big fan of Captain Marvel, meaning Shazam, and the idea of the young boy with the adult body and all that kind of stuff. And so Firestorm had some zeitgeist there. He knew Roy Thomas was tapped into it, too, with his Captain Marvel. It all's kind of in the family, I feel like. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if all those things are influencing each other. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the 70s. That's the point when all the uh, fans started becoming creators. Yeah. And who would have thought we'd end up with two Captain Marvel movies in the same year? Absolutely insane. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> and Thanos on the screen at the same time. So what's the over-under on Adam Warlock being in Guardians 3? Uh, I don't have any strong hope. No? No, You got I'm all your sure. gold people in the last one. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it goes back and forth. James Gunn's involved, and he wanted Adam Warlock, then he's not. Things are changed, so I I'm just like, you know what? I don't care. I mean, I do care, but like, I'm just gonna let it go and not drive me nuts. Fair enough. Because who knows? Well, before we end up turning this into a Marvel podcast, which I'm starting to do, we probably shouldn't do that, we should take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's tied into this month's Justice League issue in some way, shape, or form. And I picked, this time, Justice League United Trade Paperback Volume 1, and that trade paperback is called Justice League Canada. So this is the New 52 era of this particular incarnation of Justice League. 
Justice League United. It features Adam Strange, who gets caught up in a series of stuff, along with Alana, his future bride at that point, with Supergirl and Hawkman and Green Arrow and Stargirl and Martian Manhunter and Animal Man, and they introduce some new Canadian character as well. And and it's from Justice League United Zero through Five. And I, it was a pretty fun story. I like the idea. The idea was they would sort of create these little commando teams. They would pull the team members together and then pull in people that they needed for those missions. If I remember correctly, I want to say they brought Mera in for a mission and they brought Swamp Thing in for a mission. That kind of thing. Yeah, I think they did. Yeah, but it's written by Jeff Lemire, who's an exceptional comic writer. He's really great. And the reason I tie this one in here, besides the fact that it's Justice League and that team has Animal Man and Martian Manhunter, which is nice, you know, connection to this. It's also drawn by Mike McCone, who draws this book right here. So full page count is 176 pages, full color, normally retails for $16.99, but you can get it 42% off right now. It's only $9.85. Now, Al, this is the part of the show where I ask the guest if they happen to bring a pick. All the other cool kids did. So if you didn't, you don't have to feel bad. Well, yeah, you probably should feel bad. Uh, did you happen to bring anything? Oh, oh, I supposed to bring something? Um, um, uh, oh, yes. Time, yes. Oh, yes. I got something. Here we go. I, yeah, I was prepared. Really. Seriously. I promise. <laughs> How about Batman The Cape Crusader Volume 2? This collection of 80s Batman tales includes A Lonely Place of Dying, which is the first appearance of, sorry if anyone disagrees, but The Greatest Robin, Tim Drake. You are not wrong, sir. It also includes The Many Deaths of Batman and Batman Annual 13. So you have 13 issues by written by Marv Wolfman and John Byrne, art by Jim Aparo and others. The covers by Michael Bear was $29.99, but you can get it in stock trades for $17.39, 42% off. And the way it ties in here is, as we're going to see in a little bit, some of the leaguers are complaining, where are these other people that aren't here? They're on the team. You're saying they have more important things to do? Well, Batman 434, part, I think it's part two of the many deaths of Batman that's included in here. That's what Batman was doing. He actually had more important things to do. Guy Gardner? No, couldn't find anything with Guy Gardner from this month. But Batman, <laughs> this is where he was. So you did your research. I'm really impressed, sir. Well done. <laughs> so folks, you can find both of these collections out on InStockTrades.com, along with all your other trade paperback needs. This episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support. We recently launched a Patreon for the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and we started this initiative to really help cover the expenses associated with running this large network with so much content. And if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, please consider supporting this show by visiting Patreon.com slash FWPodcasts. When you're there, take a look at it, it explains all the different levels, and by doing that, you'll support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which in turn supports the JLI podcast, and we sincerely appreciate everyone's support, including folks like Chris Lewis, David A. Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, Gord Tolton, Martin Gray, Max Traver, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, Tim Price, Bill from the Bat Pod, and so many more. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Now, folks, we are going to talk about Justice League International Annual number 3 from 1989 in just a minute here. But remember, we want you to be part of this conversation. Please go out on the social medias, use our hashtag poundfwpodcast, tag us at JLI Podcast. It's all about building a community of online JLI fans. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts, what you love about this annual, what you might not like about the annual, and just be part of it and maybe just make fun of Al because it's a really like low-hanging fruit kind of thing do. It's really easy. Speaking of which, this is the chance where Al's just going to mess the whole night up and embarrass himself horribly. I'm looking forward to it. Al, I am curious. What is your personal origin story with the JLI? How'd you find the book? How'd you fall in love? Well, found the book the way I found a lot of other ones. Growing up as a kid, I always was a big reader. And my one uncle, he wasn't interested in comics at all, except for a way to make money. He would have definitely been one of the speculators in the 90s if he was able to get those issues. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and he had a way, I don't know how, Italian 
relative in the 80s who lived in Jersey working recycling. I don't want to know. <laughs> but would get comics, you know, older ones, whatever. And since I like to read, he would let me go through them. And if it wasn't really worth anything and he had doubles of them, let me take them home. Oh, so that's, that's cool. how all my comics got started until eventually I had one that made me go, hey, you know, you could buy new ones. <laughs> and it started from there. Now, there were a few Justice Leagues included in there over time. Uh, 14, 21. So at least I had the beginning and ending of a story. Right. And somehow the trade paperback, a uh, new beginning. Oh, wow. That's a great one. So I had those already. And then eventually in my reading of stuff, because the comic started with Power Pack. That's the one I started buying. Oh, so book. started with Marvel, Power Pack, which went right into, you know, X-Men and New Mutants and X-Factor because they were crossed over a lot. Inferno happened right around that time. So expanded Marvel. And eventually, because 1989, started picking up Batman because there was... Of course you did. There was a movie. Well, and it was like a law, wasn't it? Every teenage boy had to buy Batman that year? Yeah, I think actually the first Tim that Tim Drake issue, the last part of Lonely Place of Dying, was my first issue I bought. Nice timing. Well done, sir. So, and then of course you start expanding out from there. So, from what I've heard, you might understand the reason why I like this one. Issue 42 was my first issue of buying that because I was buying Star... I think I was buying Starman already. I, to, I forgot to double check because I think I bought Starman because of the crossover with the Superman story. The yeah, uh, Crisis, Crisis on Crimson... Right? Crisis on Crimson of Kryptonite, whatever it's called. Yeah. Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. Yeah, because that's where I started reading Superman, right? Th those four issues. And I read the Starman. I'm like, well, this is good. And then I saw Starman on the cover there. I went, ooh, and just continued on. So many parallels here, Al, because for me, I was reading Starman, loved the book, and the Crisis... Uh, I still can't say crisis of krypton whatever the krypton krypton i think uh <laughs> that made me pick up the superman books and that started my love affair with the superman titles for a decade so yeah. and because starman was on the cover of justice league america number 42 that's the first justice league america book i picked up as a regular buyer i had bought some previously just you know one-offs crossovers whatever but 42 is the first one i bought as a collector and then went back and bought the, all the back issues so some creepy sort of similarities here sir yeah i even started jle at the same month too okay i picked that up 18 was the same month. I checked those the same month as that one. So I picked those both up at the same time and then continued on from there. A lot of awesome parallels. And then you moved to Florida just like me. I'm getting kind of a single white female vibe off this thing, man. Are, I've actually I, thought about that before because it's funny. I've listened to you guys. I'm like, it was something I realized after I moved down here. I'm like, I think I lived for a couple years in the same area of Jersey as Rob. Yikes. I am so sorry. That is uh, America's armpit, isn't it? Wow. Okay. So I'm just going to keep you at arm's distance. I'm really glad this is over Skype and not face to face because I'm afraid you'd be holding a knife or something. Well, I'm all the way down here in Tampa, so don't worry. <laughs> It's Florida. Like, everything's like, what, 12 hours away? Uh, something like that. Sure, yeah. Well, let's just say that. And uh, there's never any crazy crime or killings in Florida ever So that make the news. So uh, nothing to worry about. I don't have to worry about Yeah, besides, I don't have to worry about that. If I wanted to, pff, you're in Florida, too. Something will happen. Florida exactly. man will get you. <laughs> I, thought you I thought we were Florida man. <laughs> Florida man will get us all, one way or another. That's true. <laughs> Why don't we get into this issue? Folks, if you don't happen to have your copy of Justice League International, annual number three, head over to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and there, there will be an image gallery sharing some of the pages from here just to help you refresh your memory or see some of the specific items we're going to talk about. This is technically Justice League Annual Number 3. Even though it says Justice League International on the cover, the actual indicia just says Justice League Annual Number 3, continuing all the way back from
from the first annual. And obviously, the publisher's DC Comics cover dated simply just says 1989. It was on the shelves May 23rd, 1989, and the cover price was $1.75. Wow, that's a lot of money at this time. Uh, it's a whole dollar more than a normal book, but it's 64 pages. So, you know, you get a lot of your money for that. Now, the cover is a uh, <laughs> funny story about the cover. Yeah. We don't know who drew it because, according to Mike's Amazing World, it was drawn by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. And I was going by that and thought that was just fine. Happened to be on another website, Comic Book Database. And they're convinced the cover is drawn by Mike McCone and Joe Rubenstein. Then I looked on Comixology and it swears it was drawn by Ron Randall, which makes no sense because Ron comes into the Justice League Europe slash international book years from now. So that one's got to be completely wrong. So I'm not even sure who drew it. My money is on Mike McCone and Joe Rubenstein. But do you have an opinion? Do you think this is McGuire? Well, I kind of do go with McGuire. I mean, look at that Power Girl face. She definitely has the O face that he's famous for drawing. That's and true. The, the blue, the beetle booster, the ice, the fire, John. There is some beautiful faces there. I, I'll give you that. But also, Joe Rubenstein can pull that off, though, because he's been inking Kevin forever, right? Hmm. Now, I'm wondering something, because it's a collection of pictures and everything. It's almost, I mean, it's not like one image. Well, before actually, you know what? Before we get, I took us immediately talking about, why don't you describe the cover to the folks at home, and then we'll we'll come back. All right, sure. Yeah, uh, you got the Just League International logo up top, and you got a nice flower layer around it. And then basically, it's a bunch of pictures scattered almost like on a table of the different members of the League around the world, since that's the theme of this issue. So we have one picture with Guy, Metamorpho, and Flash together, although Metamorpho is giving Guy devil horns, and Flash is wearing an almost stupid shirt. <laughs> we, we have uh, Ralph annoying the hell out of Power Girl in front of the Eiffel Tower, although that could have been taken any day, really. That's true. That could be any day of the week, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> Beetle and Booster with Fire and Ice enjoying some nice drinks on a tropical beach. Yep. I'm assuming that's Kahui, Kahui, Kahui. Yeah, that's my thought, too. Uh, we got John looking a little confused as he's standing about two feet over everyone else in a busy Tokyo street. <laughs> <laughs> And we have uh, Guy and Metamorpho using their powers to make weird faces, trying to get a reaction from the Buckingham Guard Palace. <laughs> <laughs> the guard there is just, he's adamant about looking straight forward without being distracted. That's perfect. I am not looking anywhere else. I am not looking anywhere else. Exactly. So I'm wondering, could it be a collection? Oh, like, could different they, artists. Like, could McGuire hmm. have done the image? I mean, I now, obviously, it'd be a lot easier today, but did they have the ability to kind of change it around a bit to add these things together, clip it together? Well, sure. They could have easily done a jam piece. Even at this point, they were doing photostats and different things. So, yeah, they could take different pieces of artwork and put it together. They certainly could have. Um, I don't get the sense that that's what's happening just because I don't feel like the art is so drastically different from image to image. But uh, it could have been done. Because you're right. The, the center picture does look very Maguire. You're right. Yeah. With with Booster and Beetle. By the way, it's fun to say Bo- Booster and Beetle, they are just like two dudes at a beach, right? They're basically in bathing suits, no shirts, but they're still wearing their cowls. Yeah, Beetle nice. still got his cowl without a shirt on. Booster still has his cowl without a shirt on. Uh, Fire is in like a, a tropical looking outfit that's probably supposed to be a grass skirt. And a Tora is uh, nicely covered up with a, with a really big hat and everything, you know, trying to protect from the sun, which is great. Super fun. Um, I don't know. My, my money's still on McCone. I think it's still McCone, but I, I would easily uh, be wrong. But yeah, if he inks McGuire for that long, it's true. He could be doing a McGuire-esque, especially since he's doing Justice League. Yeah. It's just I just feel like it's missing a little bit of polish that McGuire brings to his work. I don't know. Well, all right. We got to talk about something on this cover. And it, it's the left-hand mm-hmm. sidebar. So Al was kind enough to describe the images, right? But in the left-hand sidebar, big, big vertical yellow column. Uh, it's 
It's kind of ugly, actually, with the yellow. But anyway, it says, Annual 1989, all new, all strange, two complete stories around the world with JLI by Giffen, DiMatteis, McCone, Patterson, and Marcos, plus The Man I Never Was by Giffen, DiMatteis, and Gula, and Who's Who Embassy Staff Members. So, pretty straightforward. And then uh, the Indicia box says, 64 pages. What a bargain! Well, last night, right as I'm going to bed, I saw something, and I thought maybe I imagined it, but going back, I was able to pull it up, and I looked at it on Comixology, because I happen to own the issue on Comixology. I also uh, had the issue available on the DC Universe app. And when I was looking at it, right as I nodded off, I'm like, wait a minute, that cover where it lists all the names, right above Giffen and DeMatteis, it says Messner Lobes. Bill Messner Lobes. What the heck? Now, the version you're reading, which, which, what do you see? I'm using the DC Universe app, and yeah, Messner Lobes, Messner Lobes. Top first yeah. name listed up for both stories. So, yeah, they've actually bumped Giffen and DeMatteis down, and Messner Lobes is as if, as if he was the writer of the book, or the plotter of the book, and it, of, of both of the blocks of text. You'll see, I'll have both these on the image gallery. You'll be able to see what I'm talking about. So, I reached out on Twitter uh, and Facebook. I reached out to JMD Mateus. I put a call out also to Keith Giffen and to Kevin Dooley. And I heard back from JMD Mateus saying, you know, was Mester Loeb's involved with this book in any way, shape, or form? Because he's not listed on the inside of the book. He's not listed on any of the websites. Like, if you go to the DC Universe app and you go to the, the actual, like, web page itself where it lists the credits, Mester Loeb's name's not there. Comicology doesn't list his name there. In fact, the only place Mester Loeb's name appears is on the digital version of this cover. That's it. DeMatteis said he had no idea either why Mester Loeb's name is on there. Very strange. That is really weird. And that's a weird mistake. I mean, just adding somebody's name to it. Mm -hmm. It's not like there's a page missing. Right. And and they also changed one other thing. I mean, super minor. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, I mentioned earlier, it says, and who's who embassy staff members. Now it says, and who's who embassies of the rich and famous, which is, you know, obviously a play off the the rich and famous TV show from back then. But uh, it's very strange. So someone, and, and that brings us actually to a question of how do they create these covers? Do they scan the original art? You know, if they scan the original art for this cover, then I guess they wouldn't have that left-hand sidebar. So someone did have to retype it. Or were they just trying to get the letters looking perfect instead of a scan? Uh, but clearly someone retyped the left-hand sidebar for some reason. Yeah, it had to be added in somehow. But I mean, that is a whole big question of how do they do these digital things and how that works. Right. So strange. And, and I don't mean to be harping on it for so long, but it was just bizarre the way that worked out. Well, yeah, because I mean, he wasn't involved at all. So it's just weird to have all of a sudden have a name there. It's like, well, where'd that come from? Wait a yeah. minute. Some people have suggested perhaps he got credit because, you know, he was writing Flash at the time and Flash is in the book, but I don't see why that would really be connected because, you know, Captain Adams in the book too and Carrie Bates didn't get recognized and, you know, things like that. Batman's so. in the second story and yep, Animal exactly. Man. Animal Man. Very strange. Okay. Well, I guess that's going to do it. Why don't we get going into the issue itself here? So there are three features in here. There's a story called Around the World with the Justice League, which is a story featuring the combined Justice League America and Justice League Europe. It's 33 pages. Then there's a second story called The Men I Never Was, which is basically a Martian Manhunter and Batman story. That one's 20 pages. And then we get three pages at the very end, which are Who's Who entries. Woohoo! My beloved Who's Who. Who's Who entries for the Justice League International Embassy staff. So, getting into the first one, Around the World with the Justice League. Plot and presumably breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M. DiMatteis. Penciler is Mike McCone, who we've seen on some of the recent issues. Inker is Pablo Marcos and Bruce Patterson. Letter is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor Kevin Dooley and editor Andy Helf. You want to kick us off here? Uh, Sure, why not? All right, so there's trouble in the South Pacific. 
the natives of the small island of Kui Kui Kui, which, by the way, is really fun to say. <laughs> yes, it is. Are under pressure from the United States and Russia to allow them to build a base there. Their solution is to contact the JLI and allow them to build an embassy, which would not just force the two superpowers to back off, but they figure it would be less disruptive than having an active military base. <laughs> they don't know how this Justice League works. <laughs> yeah, they are a little behind the times, apparently. Just a bit. So they send their best and brightest, the chief's nephew, Herb. Well, okay, not the best, and he's not really the brightest, or even their best dresser, but, you know, he's brave, so <laughs> that counts. In the New York Embassy of the JLI, Max Lauder's taking some, but not all, members of the JLA on a tour of their embassies. The tour takes off with the JLI's usual professionalism, with Orberon and John somehow happy to be left behind. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the Japan Embassy, the delegates from Kui 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 have arrived looking for Max or John. Not wanting to deal with them, they get teleported over to New York. As for the tour, its first stop is the Brazil Embassy, which boasts of several features not available in New York, like a pool, or several employees who are really proficient at drooling over fire. <laughs> Back in New York, the Kuians have somehow convinced John, with a little help from Orbron, to help them find Max. Orbron will go along too, but he has to deal with another alien invasion, so he's got to take off. In Japan, while the rest of the team is looking for the pool, Max and Dr. Light discuss how best to help Japan's second greatest hero, the now comatose since the events of JLE, Rising Sun. Now I'll take it from here. The Goodwill Tour continues as the Leaguers arrive in Moscow, where the Embassy staff is thrilled that Guy Gardner and Batman <laughs> did not join them like they did for their previous visit in Justice League International number 8. Then in London, our heroes find themselves essentially living an episode of the sitcom Faulty Towers, uh, <laughs> along with exact likeness recreations in the art. When they arrive in Australia, they see how reconstruction is going after the alien invasion, and Blue Beetle expresses his anger about the impending visit with Captain Captain Adam. Beetle is still really upset since he discovered Captain's espionage activities against the JLI. Meanwhile, Martian Manhunter and the representatives from Kui Kui Kui, that is fun to say, yeah. uh, they, they trail the other <laughs> leaguers using the teleporters. They're always just one step behind the rest of the team, visiting Brazil, Japan, and Moscow just after the other heroes have left. Finally, Martian Manhunter decides to skip to the end of the itinerary and meet up with the rest of the folks in Paris. All the characters are assembled in the Paris Embassy, where much hilarity ensues. In the end, the representatives from Kui 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 convince Max that the island would be perfect for the JLI. And the final page is a beautiful shot of the island, with dialogue balloons of Beetle and Flash being completely obnoxious as they enjoy the island paradise. So that is the first story. So what do you think of it, buddy? Not much happens, but it's fun in the fact that we just get this nice little look at their lives, almost. Mm -hmm. It actually goes along with the original premise of the, just, of the JLI. You know, what do they do on their time off exactly yep it's it's a workplace comedy it absolutely is it's it's them doing their job you know going around doing some glad hand handling going and visiting different sites of their office and having goofy adventures without a super villain in sight yeah it's kind of like moving day you know we don't yeah, usually see them bit. packing up stuff yeah I, th I think you're right i think they were trying to capture a little bit of that heat from there yeah and we get Kui Kui Kui, which will come back in future issues. Oh, yeah. Everyone remembers this island specifically for the story that's around the corner. Yeah, but I mean, it even goes on further. I know at least comes up still again in Breakdowns. Gosh, does, oh, yeah, I think you're right. Oh, see, I've, I haven't read Breakdowns since they originally published. So I've been waiting to kind of read it with the show. So you're right. There. I remember a couple of uh, covers where you see some of that. Okay, that's something to look forward to. Yeah. Now, I'm liking Herb and the Chief. 
I'm trying to, I, I really got to start paying attention for the future going forward. If we ever see them specifically again, or do we just get random cooey cooey cooeyans? So, all right. So here's my take on that. Like at first I thought, cause I've heard this issue a few times now getting ready. At first I thought they were really corny. You know, I, thought, I was like, oh, this is just silly slapsticky dumb jokes. But the more I read it, it's pretty darn funny. Like the chief is genuinely got this really dry, funny wit. Cause you know, they're these, they're these island natives, but both of them went to college in the United States. And so they're, they're very hip to what's going on with us and our, our style of sarcastic humor. And it's pretty darn funny, actually. Yeah, it, it's very much like a late uh, 70s sitcom kind of wink and a nod. Like, yeah, we're, we live on this island, but we're not going to be what you think we are. Yeah, it does feel kind of like that. And, and by the way, I really like their plan. The whole idea that both the United States and the Soviet Union are vying for, you know, possession of this island. And so they, you know, very cleverly reach out to the JLI. I thought that was a, a good way to bring it into the story. And it actually makes sense. I mean, that's what the whole thing about like World War II and the Battle of Midway Island. No one ever cared about that before or after, yep. but it was strategic. And obviously they're strategic enough too. I mean, South Pacific, so I guess they're somewhere between Russia and the United States. A nice, easy place to take off from. And, and they're like, you know what? Let's just get the superheroes here. Like, they'll be here once a year to check up and that's it. But we'll be left alone. You know, and so the chief can spend his time telling, dirt, you know, stupid jokes and, you know, picking lint out of his navel. Now, did you notice the first page of the story and the last page of the story are the exact same artwork just re- represented intentionally? It's it's a distance shot of the island where the island, you know, you're looking from far away. You see the mountain, you see the beautiful palm trees, and you just hear voices coming from the island. On the front page, it's Herb talking to one of the other natives. And on the last page, it's, as I said, you know, Beetle and Flash being completely obnoxious. Uh, lie? Yes, I did. <laughs> Glad you're on top of these things. Well done, sir. The obvious? Straight over. <laughs> the natives are fun, and I like the natives' interactions as they go on through the issue, because they're really earnest, and that makes great, that does make some good comedy, when they are really taking everything as face value and earnest. When, you know, John says, like, oh, what, you want me to go take them to follow them? Oh, you would? Really? Oh, thank you, Mr. Manhunter. Thank you. <laughs> what? Um, what? Oh, oh, okay, I guess I am now. <laughs> well, there's a great bit, too, where they say he's angry, and one of the guys, who's, again, a native from this island, never met a Martian, is like, oh, that's just the Martian way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's great. There's some real funny uh, zingers and the one-liners in this thing. But then when you get them back on their island, though, the chief is treating them, you know, doing the, almost the same thing to them, though, that the other people are doing. The chief's like, this is a stupid idea. No, how do you think? It's stupid. You're stupid. Stop being right. stupid. <laughs> now, getting to the actual team together, it's not all of them. We only have about five each from the team. We have, uh, from Jaylee, we got, what, Ralph, Power Girl, Flash, Metamorph. Morphle and Animal Man. And from the JLA team, we got Beetle and Booster, Fire, Ice, and Mr. Miracle. Yep. And so, like, you know, the thing, well, other people have more important things to do. Now, we're going to see John in this issue, and we see Captain Adam, so we know what they have to do, but, well, I mean, we know why Batman's not there. Batman could have nothing to do, and he still wouldn't show up for this. Right, exactly. Because, you know, he's a jerk like that. But Guy, the only reason I can think of why Guy is in here is not that he has nothing better to do. It's that Max didn't tell him, because he's like, you know what? Just one day, one day, yes, he has a power ring. He's good for fights and everything, but there's nothing happening here. There's no fighting. We don't need him. Well, exactly. I mean, it, the last place you want to invite Guy Gardner is to the Soviet Union because he's been there multiple times in this series and he treats it like a dog has been given a bone. He gets so excited. He just goes <laughs> off and tries to fight everybody he can find. I get to you fight know, the commies. Exactly. So, I, yeah, Max definitely did not invite him on purpose. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Max, when he was about to, you know, accidentally dropped a you know thing of a monster truck or something and Guy went off. Oh, yeah, exactly. I did like there's a bit in here with Beetle and Booster with when they're in, with Flash. They're in Moscow at this point. And Flash is cracking jokes like, 
like he always does. And Beetle says, sounds like Flash has the right attitude. And Booster says, sounds like competition to me. Which is hilarious, because, I mean, it, it, there's no doubt about it. When you read the Justice League Europe book, Flash is clearly trying to tap into that same sort of, you know, bit that Be- Beetle and Booster give you in the JLA book. They're trying to use Flash for the humor there. So uh, they just call it right out. I like that. Yeah, it's like, that. you're competing with us. This is our this is our shtick, not yours. Exactly. Now, speaking of which, the art. Yes. I like Mike McCone in later stuff, but some of the stuff here, like some of the faces seem a little off. Mostly the non-covered faces, like Beetle and Booster Flash are fine, mm-hmm. but Max looks a little off to me, and so does John, which is kind of funny because when we get to the England, all those yeah. are perfect. It's definitely, there, there's an inconsistency to it. And I think that is, and I'm not trying to knock Mike McCone, because Mike McCone, at this point, you got to remember, he only has a few published comic books. I mean, he came in the door working on JLE almost immediately. All right, not JLE, I mean, sorry, Justice League International, immediately. And so this is maybe, I don't know, his fourth published book at this point. So he has actually, for a newer artist, is doing really, really good. And, and some of the differences, I think, too, is you end up with two different inkers. You've got Patterson and Marcos doing some of the inking. And that could be part of it. Yep. And I think some of the more polished stuff is towards the end. And I think that might be because that's the other inker. Yeah, because some of these faces don't look fine. Rosa from the Russia, mm-hmm. like her face is perfect. Like it, yeah. there's nothing seems off about it, but like especially page seven, panel two. The close-up of Max Lord. Oh yeah, yeah. That isn't. That just looks like some random dude. Yeah, yeah, that's just like really like what? What? Like that just a little bit out. But I mean, and I know this was earlier in his career. I mean, I read those Just League United issues. You know, Mike McClone's art is great. And mm-hmm. didn't he do a bunch of? Uh, oh god, what was that? Was it Exiles? I think. Uh, he may have done Exiles. I mean, he did a big run on uh, Teen Titans for Jeff Johns, which was phenomenal. Oh yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, those were great. Yeah. So yeah, early in his work, that's fine. I'm just saying it's a little. There's a few wonky faces, and but it's not all of them. It's just occasionally like, oh, that's weird. And, you know, I, that stuck with me all these years, because when we came to do this annual, one of the things that I remember going, it was like, oh, the art in this isn't my favorite. And we'll talk more about that in the second story as well. But I remembered not being a huge fan of the art in this one. Not that it was, you know, the first story here. It's not terrible, but it's also not, you know, it's not Ken Wire. No. It's not Ty Templeton. You know, it's it's not what we've been getting. And so it's, uh, it was, it felt like a little bit of a step down artistically. Yeah. To be fair, a lot of people would have been a step down from um, Kevin McGuire. So, you know. That's true. That's absolutely true. Not many people People are going to come out like Kevin McGuire did. I mean, that's just Man, right out of the gate. That guy was swinging. Yeah, that's just that's just insanity. Yep. Uh, speaking of though, we talked about the art when I we talked about it. I guess let's jump to England. I realized it since I because I read this issue a couple times over the years, so I realized it before. But I, it's funny the first time I read it, I did not catch on to the whole uh, Faulty Towers thing. First time I read it, I did not either because I was not aware of Faulty Towers. But I probably could tell what you're about to explain. I think right. Oh yeah, in that the embassy staff there is basically the cat of Faulty Towers, or most of them. No problem. Right, and there's, there's no way you can miss that that's John Cleese. Oh, God, that is uh-huh. 100% John Cleese doing the Basil Faulty bit, which is great. Yes. And then his wife, and then Esteban instead of Manuel. Right. <laughs> they changed the names, but clearly either Giffen or Dimitrius is a big Faulty Towers fan at this point, which in 1989, it had made its way over here, you know, and whether it be PBS or somebody was running it, and it's a great sitcom. I, I actually had never really watched much of it, but in preparation for this episode, I tuned and watched a few episodes, and it's pretty darn funny. It is one of the funniest shows, and the fact that there's only 12 episodes is amazing. Right. Well, and John Cleese is, you know, he's just at the top of his game at that age, and, and the rest of the cast is phenomenal as well. So, yeah, really enjoyed it. And, and, and it adds more to this story once you've watched some Faulty Towers. Yeah, but for anyone who doesn't know really, really fast, Faulty Towers is a sitcom that John Cleese from Monty Python did. Uh, he did two seasons, six episodes each, one in 1975, one in 79. He plays Basil Faulty, who owns a little 
little hotel in the middle of nowhere, England, with his wife. Uh, his wife's job is basically to go to the hairdresser and boss him around <laughs> and not get involved. He is the manager of the hotel, but he is A, pretty incompetent, and B, thinks he is the best thing ever. His butt is usually saved by Polly, who you would probably know if you saw Monty Python's Holy Grail. She's the witch that they try to uh, drown. And she was John Cleese's wife uh, during the first season of Faulty Towers, too. Yeah, and she's the assistant who basically keeps most of it running and knows better than him. And then there's Manuel, who is from Spain. He's from Barcelona, speaks no English, and the best way Basil Faulty knows how to communicate with him is by screaming. Yes. Because assuming that'll make him understand things. If you want to see a really super high-strung John Cleese, this is the place to go. So if you watch that and then read the England things, it's a lot funnier, because then everything makes more sense. Now, if memory serves, and I might be talking completely out of school here, guys, because I have not reread it again going uh-huh. forward. I'm pretty sure he becomes Beefeater and yep. joins Justice League Europe, doesn't he? Yep, that's the Beefeater. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. I am. I mean, I didn't read forward, but I am 99% sure that's the Beefeater. That's my memory as well. Oh, my gosh. It's like issue 22, <laughs> I think. Something like that. Somewhere, somewhere in that realm. We'll find out sooner or later, yeah. And also, speaking of the embassies, the embassies were all fun. The Japan embassy was great. Yep. I mean, there's not much there, except for the just getting rid of the Kui Kui Guns and uh, just a little bit of continuity from JLE. Yeah, I really like that. The fact that they did, they bothered to step in and do that. Because br- at first I'm like, why are they showing Rising Sun? And then I'm like, oh yeah, it happened in Justice League Europe just recently. That makes perfect sense. So that was a nice bit of continuity. I do like the bit with Max refers to Rising Sun as Japan's greatest hero. And Dr. Light immediately corrects him and goes, second greatest? <laughs> That's very cute. <laughs> no, that was good because she's like, no, I'm the greatest. Let's get this straight. But also, Rio. Now, my, my question is this. After, after this issue, what is Beetle more upset about? Captain Schrader, as he likes to call Captain Adam, or the fact that they don't have a pool? I think, because you know, Beetle is, he's all over the board. Uh, it, it, he tends to get really worked up about an issue, and then the next issue, because the plot demands it, he just moves on and forgets about it. So I think the swimming pool is something he's just going to forget about in Vaughn. The Captain Adam thing is still going to continue to burn a hole in his stomach, I think. It's going to give him an ulcer. Yeah. So in, in the pool in the Brazil Embassy, by the way, so it, they do talk about how there's not one in the New York Embassy, which is probably why Aquaman never joined this league, I would imagine. I'm sure there's no other reason for that. But he could certainly join Justice League Brazil, you know? Yeah, they, were, they need a league. Why not? Sure, give him something to do. Yeah, at this He wasn't really doing much else at this time. No, I'm like, wasn't he bored at this time, just hanging out, you know, with Tusky? Pretty much he had nothing to do at this point. Yes, Aquaman was at a, a bit of a low ebb with publication at this point. Yeah, this was a few years before the, and I'm never going to get invited to his shows now, Greatest Run of Aquaman came out. All right, so Peter David Run. I also am a huge fan of the Peter David Run. I have a hard time identifying what is my absolute favorite run of, of Aquaman, but I will say my heart absolutely belongs to that run, though, because that was my peak fandom of uh, Aquaman was during that run. That's when I started reading it. So that's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like your first one is the one you think is the best. Sure. The one that makes you go, oh, I like this. Yes. Now, you talked about earlier Beetle being upset about uh, either the pool or Captain Adam. There's a line in here that kind of struck me. It was on page 28 where Fire says, Beetle, I've never seen you so intense and so angry. And she's talking again about how mad he is about Captain Adam. And I'm thinking, you know, just a few issues ago, he was crazy and had a knife and was running around the embassy (laughs) slicing up people. So I think she probably has seen him a little more over the edge than this. Well, it wasn't him, though. It's true. It was programming. That's fair, I suppose. This is him. 
blame him. And w- did she get to see any of that? Wasn't she like sick? Wasn't that when the fire? Um, wasn't that when she started doing the real fire, becoming fire, as opposed to just that, green that, flame? That was all tied together. She, you know, she may have missed it. She came downstairs. Guy Gardner yelled at her to get down there and help with Oberon, who just had been cut up. So she, I guess, Beetle might have already been out the door by the time she came down. So I, maybe I'm. But you know what? She would have saw Beetle because he was locked up in the embassy though uh, for the next couple of days and was had some real manic moments there too. So either way, it just the line jumped out at me. I was thinking, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. I think she was in bed for most of that time. She probably just heard him ranting and raving. I was like, oh God, what happened now? Did they preempt his show again? Aww. Because he is a bit of a drama queen. Just a bit. Oh, and one other thing I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. Now, if you get towards the end when you get that nice big page with Captain Adam on it finally. Yep. Since we were talking about before about like our comics and like reading Superman and all that for a couple years, especially during nap time period, Death and Return. Yep. Superman did not have a mullet, but Captain Adam 100% business in the front, party in the back. Oh yeah. No denying that. I don't know that anyone could deny that. I think that's why they gave Captain Adam a haircut not too long after this, actually. <laughs> but yes, he is that absolutely rocking the uh, MacGyver mullet. There's no denying that. See, this is how you know he's breaking with the military, because that is not regulation. That is very true. Good point. Good point. Since we're talking about Captain Adam, you know, he is really wound up about this issue with facing the American League, because this is the first time he's had to face them since it all came out that he was a traitor and was spying on them all those times and even lied to Blue Beetle. That all happened in the Captain Adam issues, not in the Justice League issues. This is only the second time it's ever been acknowledged in the Justice League issues. One was in the Justice League Europe issue that was covered last episode, and then here. So it's only the second time it's been addressed in a Justice League comic, and he is really, really freaking out about it. I mean, it's all right there on the page. You can't miss it. If the secrets are finally uh, being discussed, and all the American team members know, but apparently Max has instructed them not to tell the European team members. So at this point, the European team members still don't know that Captain Adam was spying in the Justice League for a weird period of time. No, oh, it looks like one of them found out here. Right! Because <laughs> Beetle is complaining about it. It's a Martian Manhunter, and Animal Man is standing right there. I don't know if that's a, just an art guffaw or what, but uh, or, or that there were ambiguous enough comments that perhaps Animal Man doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not sure. They're sitting there saying, don't discuss it, and yet Animal Man is right there in the Now, I mean, it could go either way, because you're looking at the artwork in there, Paige. Look at Metamorpho. I mean, they have everyone just who don't have, everyone who doesn't have lines is just kind of standing there. Like, you can tell Flash and Booster are talking. Yep. And you got Metamorpho there, arms crossed, looking kind of grumpy. Now, yep. Animal Man, who is standing next to John, is doing the same thing. So it could just be random art drawing like that, or you could take it as Animal Man hearing that going, I'm not liking this. Maybe that's why he had to leave the team soon after. Ooh, that's right. Yeah, because he's gone like an issue or two. <laughs> well, no, it's more like issue 12, basically. Um, that's when Morrison really took a left turn and they're like, okay, we can't really justify oh, having yeah. him running around in Europe while his family's, all this stuff's happening with his family and all this other stuff. Yeah, he goes to the leather costume and all that fun stuff. Yep, exactly right. But I mean, there's a lot of fun little bits in here. I mean, and character bits too. I like Rosa from the USSR. Yeah, they're fun. He calls Flash up to her. You are very adorable. Would you like to come to my apartment later? <laughs> She or her sister will appear again. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the, the, the French lesson, right? Maybe there are not, but I'm thinking uh, it, one of the, I think it's one of the extremist stories. Oh, okay. So maybe it's a, maybe they're going to multiple appearances. I was pretty sure they're in the French lesson, but I guess I'll find out in a month or two when we cover it. That's possible. I got to reread that one. It's been a while. There's some funny bits in here too, like where Power Girl's talking to fire and they're talking about Ice and Guy Garner going on a date, but Ice is never mentioned. It's all just there in the dialogue. So if you're reading the comic, you get more out of it because Power Girl just goes, she actually dated Guy Gardner? 
Well, yes. And he's still walking. <laughs> so there's lots of great. I mean, it's, it's given to Demetrius. Of course, it's going to be funny. So lots of funny bits in here. And when we get to the Bwahaha Award at the end, I think we're going to have a hard time picking the best comment. Yeah, I have one or two runner ups. <laughs> oh, OK. All right. Well, uh, anything else on this story before we get into the next one? I'm just going joke wise again, because it's not one of my favorite ones. But I, I am amused by the uh, the fact Herb. Herb, he's like, your name's Herb? He's like, my mother was American shipwreck victim. And your father? There are several candidates. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a great one. Again, the, all the stuff of the natives, it's just one liner after one liner after one liner. It's very witty. And again, and, and the first time I read it, didn't dig it. But as I've you know, spent more time with it, I see the beauty of this issue. So. The chief's his father. You think so? How does he know if it's his nephew? The mother was a shipwreck victim. She can't be related to the chief. The father has to be. The chief oh. doesn't want to have a kid. The chief doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want, the chief's his dad. I just realized that. The chief has got to be his dad. I like that. I like that. Or everyone there is his brother. And he just thinks it's anybody, one of the, everyone else there. Yeah, true. Either way. But either way. I like your version better. It's clever. Yeah, the chief's like, I don't want to deal with a kid. I'm your uncle. Especially Herb. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Worst Lenkoffs ever. All right. Let's get into this here. The next story is called The Men I Never Was. It's 20 pages. Plot and breakdown by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M. DiMatteis. Art by Tim Gula. I think I'm probably saying that wrong. It's G-U-L-A. Hopefully. Uh, So he he did the uh, pencils and inks. Letters by Tim Harkins. Colors to Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor Kevin Dooley. And editor Andy Helfer. You want to start us off? Sure. We're in Gotham City. And Batman interrupts what appears to be a random assault. But it turns out it's just John, Martian Manhunter, scaring information out of a stool pigeon. A detective had been recently killed. And years ago, that detective had been Detective John Jones, also the Martian Manhunter, first partner, and his first Earth friend. He wants justice. Now, Batman is first a bit against the methods that John is using because, well, they're Batman's methods. <laughs> but eventually agrees to help. Now, back at the embassy, Orberon, at Max's insistence, is trying to track John down. They just want to make sure he doesn't go too far in this. But Orberon is interrupted by Guy Gardner. Back on the streets, Batman and John are beating their way through the underworld, trying to get to somebody who would have some useful info for them. I'll take it from here. So, Martian Manhunter and Batman make quick work of these thugs, arranging for Scarlatti to meet with them. But unfortunately, even the crime boss doesn't know anything about Manhunter's friend's death. Manhunter reflects on the violence that comes so easy to him nowadays, going against everything that the Martian culture and religion stood for. Back at the embassy, Guy Gardner is furious to discover that there's a JLI comic strip, which portrays him as sort of simple-minded, like he was after receiving the bump on the head a couple years ago. And later, Oberon accidentally interrupts Martian Manhunter while he's meditating in his true alien form, and Batman delivers the sad news that Manhunter's friend's death was just a random, senseless murder committed by an out-of-control junkie. No connection to his police work, just senseless. Manhunter informs Oberon he's taking a few days off from work for personal reasons, and then in his true alien form, Jean sings a prayer for his fallen friend and does some soul-searching. So, what'd you think of this one. Story-wise, a nice little John Batman story. I mean, it's kind of funny that they can work so well together because of the detective thing. They do make a good pairing. Mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of the art in this story, but it's because it just looks so odd for the characters it is. But I think it would be better if it was something that either this guy started doing or create her own thing. My best thing to think about is Brett Blevins on The New Mutants. When he came over, especially after loving the Sinkevich stuff, I was not a fan. But Sleepwalker, which he 
drew from the beginning, I thought he was perfect on that. It was great. You, you make a good point because yeah, Batman looks very off model. So does Martian Manhunter. But you're right. The the cartooniness of the other goons and stuff look great. Some of these faces are really fun and expressive, and, and they don't look like a real person. They look like a cartoon character, but they look great. Like there's this thug on there's a, a nine panel grid on page ten, which tells me that Giffen did the layouts. But the middle panel on page ten is th- this guy's face is getting choked out by Batman. Oh yeah, it's just like <laughs> but it's a fun cartoony panel. It looks it look again doesn't look anything like a real person, but it looks super fun. But meanwhile, like the Batman on the same page going the third panel on that page, like the Batman yep. just almost looks like a, just a guy in a Batman Halloween costume. Right. It, it looks completely off model. And so I, I, I did a little research because the art doesn't sit well with me either. You're right. And, and that's another reason why I thought of this annual like, oh, I'm not a big fan of this one. But I looked it up. So Tim Gula, prior to this, he had done a couple issues of the Spectre. So not a lot of work leading up to it. So I was thinking, okay, so maybe he's just not that accomplished of an artist. However, I dug deeper. Dude, this guy's amazing. He worked on character designs and backgrounds for things like The Lion King. He worked on Kid Video, Real Ghostbusters, Tiny Toons, Rugrats. He was a storyboard artist for Batman the Animated Series and Justice League and Superman. And nowadays, he's an art teacher out in California working for multiple schools. And I've seen some of his modern work, and it is stunning. I might have to look so up. So I, th- I think what we're seeing here was an intentional style that he chose to draw in, probably, because he seems to be a really accomplished artist. And you know Giffen. Giffen was all kinds of experimenting in this time. I mean, this is 1989. Think about his Legion, five-year-later Legion stuff. If it hasn't started, it's about to. Yeah. Which is all kinds of crazy styles. So I think this is, you know, total speculation. I have nothing to back this up. But my guess would be Giffen tapped this guy and said, you know what, hey, let's get him in here and have him draw something kind of crazy and different. I mean, it is kind of crazy and different, but yeah, it's not my first choice for something like this for Batman, but yeah, if I you told me this guy had a little creator-owned crime story or whatever, I would read it. Yeah. He could do some fun stuff with that, so it's not bad, it just doesn't, not everyone's style fits everything. Yeah. Now, so getting back to the story, I feel like I've read this type of story before, and I can't put my finger on it. Maybe Diablo Frank, if he's listening, can help us, because he's the Martian Manhunter expert, but you know, the, the idea of Martian Manhunter avenging a fallen friend from his days as a police officer. Oh. That seems to be tickling in the back of my brain, and and maybe it was published after this, but I swear I've read something along those lines. Oh, you mean specifically Martian Manhunter. I was thinking at first you meant just generic, you know, I'm like, of course, we see this story 5,000 times. Oh, no, no. I mean specifically Martian Manhunter. Like, you know, know, some friend of his that he worked with back in his police days has been injured or killed, and he has to come in and, you know, help him out. So it's, anyway. Uh, Someone, if you think of it, put it in the comments, please. American Secrets? No, that was in the 50s. I'm not sure. Yeah, I've got know. a different question for you here, so I'm going to leave you thinking here. So, Martian Manhunter, in this story, is fighting people, he's punching people, he's going pretty violent. And in here, he, in, in his in his own head, the commentary is, he's talking about how he is a warrior, but he's from a pacifist society and religion. So, him being a warrior now, and his religion being completely about peace and nonviolence, do you think what he's doing is wrong now? It's hard to tell. Well, here's the thing. I didn't read, I still need to read that Martian Manhunter mini he's talking about was uh mm-hmm. Demetrius did he write that one too yeah he wrote, he wrote it and Badger drew it I didn't think about that till now because I was thinking like the stories the ending's a bit ambiguous and vague I'm like maybe I'm just stupid maybe I'm missing it but now I'm wondering if it was intentionally like that or makes more sense if you read the miniseries so I'm just going by what I'm seeing here it sounds like he would be but the prop the thing is he just kind of found out that it looks like he has some false memories so he's not wrong for doing that because he still kind of seems like shifting through which memories are real and which aren't and what is actual. Yeah, he might be now realizing, oh, this is my actual culture, but I thought it was something else for so long and I'm so used to doing that. So it's not so much him doing wrong, you know, 
it's it's still this is still too new and he's still I feel like he's still processing trying to figure out how to do this yeah I think he's very conflicted over it I think you're right and I think the end of the story you see that where he's trying to you know he's singing a song for his fallen friend he's trying to do the right thing from a Martian perspective and yet somehow rationalize what he's doing here on Earth so yeah I, I like the idea of him being a, a man of two worlds you know having a hard time deciding and literally now two two worlds and also the fact that I was thought I was from the warrior culture and now I'm not yep now the story ends with him taking a leave of absence for a little while it's probably only a few days but this uh, this just it becomes a reoccurring thing with Martian Manhunter like it, I would love to see a chart of how many times he has taken a leave of absence from the Justice League because he does it a whole bunch every time he has a story where it's heavy he like quits the league for a while I remember during the JLA era I mean he was quitting left and right all the time and always ended up coming back yeah, I don't want I don't want to call him a quitter but he takes a lot of time off he's using he's hitting that PTO pretty hard I think he's trying to come but he's trying to go as different people he's making new identities up well that's certainly what Ostrander's series would tell us yeah yeah or even this series in about what 30 40 issues oh yeah okay I don't remember oh oh Jurgen's run now I know yes which now I, know what you're I have about. no idea if you're even gonna be talking about that or not no actually the, the the purpose of this series is to specifically cover the Giffen Dimatteis era so we will go up through breakdowns stop there given that that's probably still three four years away if my heart is still in it and I hope it is we'll jump forward and cover I can't believe it's not the Justice League that you know the Super Buddies era and then if I'm still in for it even though I will have been doing this for like I don't know 15 years of my life at that point <laughs> then I will jump in and do Justice League 3000 and Justice League 3001 that was fun okay in that case then I'm not spoiling anything for the show after Giffen Dimitri's leave the book and Dan Jurgens takes over right before Death of Superman the new character Bloodwind joins who yep. is revealed to actually be the Martian Manhunter dun 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 yes. so let's get to the last three pages here the who's who entries for the JLI Embassy staff three pages long and it features six entries you get an entry for Japan, France, Brazil, Moscow, London, and Australia. And I'm just going to touch on them real briefly. And they'll they'll be on the gallery, so you can go out there and read these yourself. In Japan, I, I do like the gentleman who's introduced there. He's absolute perfectionist. I like how he's a master at Kung Fu origami. And, uh, <laughs> and I like how the maintenance guy is apparently so fixated on John Wayne that uh, he'll start a fight if anyone talks bad about John Wayne or says his real name is Marion. It was? What? <laughs> well, all right. Up next is the French Embassy with, of course, Catherine Colbert from Justice League Europe. Oh, I have such a comic book crush on this lady. I am unabashedly can't deny it, folks. I'm sorry. And I always cite this who's who entry specifically for some really cool facts they they, they share about her. Because you know, we always knew she was smart. She was very clever in Justice League Europe. She was, you know, I'll just call it, she was sexy as hell uh, in the series as well. But here they talk about, again, how schooled she is, her brilliance. They talk about in here, she is well known in France. Women adjust their wardrobe to what Catherine Colbert is wearing. So whenever I say she's a fashion template in Paris, I that comes directly from the Who's Who entry. I think it's fantastic. And they also introduce here Antoli Bob Blazak, I guess. I, I don't I probably said that horribly wrong, but he's like a technician that works in the Paris embassy, which we've never seen him before, and I'm not sure we ever will again. <laughs> and did we see him in this issue? I remember seeing him, seeing him. No, I, he did not show up. As far as I know, he is just here on this Who's Who page. I think that's the only oh, so- time we see him. I, I should have mentioned, by the way, all these Who's Who entries are drawn by Keith Giffen. So that's worth mentioning as well. Then we go over to yeah. Brazil, where you get Ernesto Lopez, who first appeared back at JLI number 12, and uh, his secretary, Inez, who's funny, because in this issue, she storms out. She quits. But here it says, at the end of the JLI annual, it seems like she's quitting, but she's very devoted to her job. We'll probably be back. So that's kind of cool. I like, 
that. Now, he really seems to me to be modeled on, like, Danny DeVito. Are you seeing that, too? Oh, yeah. He he is... Oh, God, what's the character's name? From Taxi. From Taxi? You think that's who he's supposed to be? Okay. Well, it says, Ernesto Lopez is all the worst bosses you ever had. Short-tempered, impatient, arrogant, bigoted. You do all the work, and he takes all the credit. And those are his good points. <laughs> Wasn't that his character in Taxi? That is pretty much so, yeah. And c- considering we've got Faulty Towers in another embassy, that would make a lot of sense if that's where he's going in this one. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Then over to Moscow, you've got uh, Boris, who we met back in JLI number eight. And then here we meet Rosa and Dana, the twins, who are these uh, enormously large women. They're they're six feet tall, 250 pounds. They are, come from a family of wrestlers, and they were known as the Twin Peaks of Siberia. So <laughs> they're, they're very large ladies, and they look like they could really mess you up quite a bit. And damn smart, apparently. It says they're top of their classes. Oh, yeah, that's true. I, yeah. I forgot about that. But it all, then it also says they're addicted to Kentucky Fried Chicken and Hershey's Chocolate Syrup on everything. Oh. <laughs> all right. Then we move over to the London Embassy, where we get, of course, the cast of Faulty Towers. Now, Giffen does not make much effort to make these characters look like the Faulty Towers characters, whereas McCone really did. Here, oh, it's yeah. just uh, representatives of, you know, those similar kind of body types, really, is what you're getting there. And also has a little fun with the uh, statistics. Oh, yes, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, Michael, seven stone weakling. Lisa, ten stone. Right. Eyes, Michael, bloodshot. And so for hair, it says Lisa, red blonde, ahem. Right. And if you watch the series, I mean, all of that really fits quite well. So, and poor Esteban, who doesn't speak English and he's clumsy and all that, it all fits perfectly with the show. And the, the final entry is for Australia, which is uh, the Tasmanian devil right there. And I love the origin here. It's it's <laughs> complete. Oh, I'll just read it. Whatever. Born in Tasmania, his origin is sketchy, but rumor has it that his mother, a were-Tasmanian devil, raised him in a Tasmanian devil cult, which gave him a Tasmanian devil amulet after selling his soul to a Tasmanian devil and injected him with radioactive Tasmanian devil musk from a race of alien Tasmanian devils who gave him his powers. Other sources say he was watching a Warner Brothers cartoon. <laughs> so, you know, whichever. It's, it's a funny bit. I like it. And then they introduce as well Josh, who is in this issue. Josh is apparently just the nicest guy you'll ever meet from the Australian embassy. So nice to see these guys. Really enjoyed it. And this was a nice addition because throughout all of the 1989 annuals, they had who's who pages in the back. So instead of getting who's who update 89, you got these supplementary pages in the annuals, which we uh, covered on the on our Who's Who podcast, we did two episodes devoted to the 1989 Summer Annuals. So if you want to hear more about those, please check that out. So one or two things on the Who's Who's pages uh, real quick. One, I love these ones. It makes it feel like a more lived-in place. Mm, mm-hmm. Like this is real. It actually reminds me of when uh, Alpha Flight, oh, when yeah. Fabian Niciezas took it over. Like So it's like 87 to like, to like 103 or 104 when they sure. brought back Guardian. And they restructured Alpha Flight and, like, and made it like, okay, this is now like a government organization. And they had like different levels for it and there were people who just worked as training and people who, like they made it feel more like a real thing like you could know if you live there you could know somebody who happened to work for Alpha Flight mm, okay and, and this kind of does the same thing it's like yeah these are all these people in these different countries and their job is to work for the Justice League I love you know, that and, idea because prior to this I mean the Justice League I don't think had ever had a staff right yeah not that I mean except for the one or two people we would see you know my you know, supporting characters Sue Dibney or uh, oh, Charles Gunn that's true Dale Gunn yeah Dale guess, Gunn that's yep. it I'm thinking that's I was a, watching Angel recently 
recently. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Dale Gunn was was sort of staff. So, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. But here you get staff around the world. And these are, whereas Dale felt like sort of a part of the team without powers, these guys are just punching the clock. That's who these people are. And yeah, so they're regular, everyday Joes. And also, I just noticed something on here. Mm-hmm. And it kind of fits the way Keith Giffen does stuff, is that like some people would do things very blatantly and obviously and jump up and down screaming, yoo-hoo, look at me. Right. And Giffen kind of slides it in and it actually goes, actually perks that works out well. I said Alpha Flight a minute ago. Yeah. Issue 105, the famous North Star comes out issue, mm-hmm. which is very much a, yoo-hoo, look at me, look at me right here. Yeah. But here, a couple years before that, in the Joshua's personal data, it says family status, Angus father, Robin mother, Arthur spouse. Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Okay, that's nice. So it's just there. And it's not like a, ooh, look, this, look, we have a gay person here. Yay. It's, oh yeah, he's gay. Right. It's but just, he's also the guy in charge here. And apparently also everyone feels better when he's around. Yeah. I like that. You're right. It's, it's not, like you said, it's not in the face. It's just, yeah, everybody's different. Everyone comes from all walks of life. And just because that's his sexual orientation, it doesn't define who he is. It's just part of who he is. He's a whole, he's a much bigger picture than that. I like that. Yeah. For his status, for his, you know, who's, who's page that all really counts for that. Is that, yeah, that's the name of his spouse. Yeah. Perfect. Which I is like, kind of cool. I like that quite a bit. Well, that is the end of of the annual. We don't have a letters page. We don't have anything else. That is the end. So, this is the moment that everyone's been waiting for. This is the moment where we're going to award the Pwahaha Award. And each of us are going to nominate what we think is the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Al have picked one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Al, you're the guest, so you get to go first. What is your nomination for the Bwahaha Award? Because there's a lot of funny shtick in this one. There actually are a lot of funny lines, and I actually have one or two things as my runners-up real quick to mention. Okay. Hopefully they're not yours. All right. <laughs> in the second story, I really like Orberon's comment as he walks in and sees John in his uh, true form. I feel like I see my mother naked. Right. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. And in the very beginning of the first story, when the chief, you know, turns down Herb's plan because he thinks it's stupid, he says, why don't we just pray to several obnoxious gods to send plagues to both countries and be done with it? <laughs> very good as well. I like that. Good choices. But my favorite is from John's interaction with the Kui Kui Kuiians. And actually, something I mentioned to you off air, I forgot until I reread this one. I've actually used this line on people before. When okay. Orburn is coming up, because Orburn's going to tell him, hey, why don't you take them the follow them. You know the itinerary, and you know John does not want to go. So John just doesn't even let Orburn speak and just says, Orburn, that's very nice that you have an idea. Write it down, fold it up, and I will read it later. And the whole reason John's doing that is because he's a telepath. He knows what Oberon's thinking. So he's trying to shortcut Oberon saying, because he knows like you just like you said in your description, that the Kui 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 people will be super excited about the idea. And I gotta tell you, Al, it is not very often in the history of this podcast where the guest and I have picked the identical same moment, but we have today, sir. Yes. John, because he uses it a couple times in the issue. It's just hysterical. I'm glad you have an idea. I'll put an envelope and I'll read it later. It's just freaking brilliant. I love it. With the telepath, hysterical. So, um, yeah, there's there's no debate. We have a clear-cut winner, folks. Congratulations, John. You have won the Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. Uh, it is as tangible as the laughter we give you. And we'll be sure to include that page on the image gallery so you can see it as well, folks. Well, Al, I got a favor to ask. Would you, uh, you know, we're both Floridians. Would you mind heading over to the Florida embassy and checking it out to ensure that everything's running smoothly? I, I hear that they're making uh, it a voting precinct because, you know, everything's a voting precinct in Florida, apparently. And I just want to be sure that they've installed all the equipment completely and utterly incorrect so that Florida is sure to delay the results of the next election as usual. 
Yeah, yeah, no problem. I, I saw the, the invoices. They were getting a you know, new shipment from Acme. Ah. Uh, I think it said re- recommended by, I think it's a French name, Willy Coedit or something. Perfect, perfect. That that makes a lot of sense given the way Florida votes in pretty much every election. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Well, folks, while Al's getting that squared away, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And then when we come back, I am going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. All right, Justice Loggers. I think I like that. I might use that. So before we get to the feedback, I just want to share some info on some fun fan artwork that's come my way. Heard from our buddy Ward Hill Terry. Now, he drew some fun JLI humor strips way back in the mid-80s, and he's just recently found the artwork, and he shared them with me. It's really funny stuff. I'm going to be sharing some of those via Facebook and Twitter in the coming weeks, so be sure to watch for those. Also, a few months ago, I appeared on the Squadron Supreme cast with past guests of our show, Sean Ross and Greg Arugia, where we talked about a couple issues of Squadron Supreme. On that show, we went through a series of questions. And one of the things is, if you know the Squadron Supreme, they're basically parallel or analog versions of the Justice League, specifically the satellite era of the Justice League. So we sort of speculated, all right, what would be analogs or parallels to the Justice League International era of characters? So we started brainstorming what would be some fun analogs. Like, we already have Nighthawk, who's a parallel of Batman. But what about Blue Beetle? So we came up with the Green Grasshopper. Or what about Mr. Miracle? We came up with the Escapist. Or what about Booster Gold? And we came up with Touchdown. So anyway, uh, our buddy Andy Capellish was listening to that episode and took pen to paper and started drawing some of these characters from the inspiration of that episode. So lots of fun. So be watching for those also out on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be sharing those out. Super awesome, fun artwork by you guys. Amazing community of listeners of this show. I can't believe it. Now, if you want to be part of the fun, folks, if you want to be part of the discussion, be sure to get out on social media. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast, or even better, tag Justice League International on Facebook or Twitter. We're out there. As I said, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, please be sure to let me know, and we'll assign you the appropriate embassy. Now, for this discussion, we're going to be pulling comments from our website, email, social media. Really, the best place to leave your comments is on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. There's a post for this episode. That's where the majority of the discussion is going to be. Right now, I'm going to be pulling those comments from there and, as I said, the other places around the web. And we'll be discussing the most recent episode covering Justice League America number 28 and Justice League Europe number 4 with my guests Scott Tipton and Dr. Ange. Now, as I get ready for these, I, I compile all this information into a Google document and then I read through all of it because I, I just pull bits and pieces. I don't do all of it because if I read every bit, we'd be here all day. And I keep thinking I can make these feedback sections shorter. However, y'all come back with some of the most interesting takes on these issues that I just feel like I gotta read certain parts and by the end I put together a huge collection of feedback so forgive the length of the feedback section but just know it's because you people are amazing so our first comment comes from Michelle Fife who is a past guest of this show he is also the creator writer and artist of Copra which is currently being published by Image Comics yeah that's right way to go Michelle that is fantastic now folks I'm not saying that if you are affiliated with the JLI podcast your career is gonna explode but I'm also not saying 
saying it. Anyway, uh, Michelle says, the guy with the Batman shirt on the cover of JLA number 28 is William Big Vogel from Tropic Comics in Miami. He believes that Kevin Guire used to live down in Florida and was friendly with the shop. Michelle goes on to say that he used to save his allowance for months so he could binge on their half-off back issue sales, which happened twice a year. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michelle, and congratulations on the success of Copra. Then we heard from Michael Kramer, who says, the bit with Black Hand's cosmic blaster fizzling was a bit diluted for me since it was a couple years after Star Trek IV came out. You know, Michael, that's crazy because that is exactly the noise I was envisioning in my head when I was reading Justice League International, that noise from Star Trek IV when Chekhov tries to blast the guy. That's exactly what I was hearing. Anyway, back into Michael's letter. He says, the part of this issue that really hits me is that guy basically tricks Ice into going out with him to this film, not just by playing the wounded outcast to get her to agree to the date in the first place, but also he's basically selling her on the idea that they're seeing an innocent film starring arguably three of the 1980s most popular television and film actors. He weighs off her questioning as she tries to make sure they're really seeing what she thinks they're supposed to be seeing. The real reason I think she got so mad wasn't because he took her to this movie, but also because he conned her into it at every turn. Now, in today's world, I agree. There is no way Ice would even be seen in the same group shot with Guy, and rightfully so after this. That being said, I became a huge fan of the Guy-Ice relationship and have often likened it to Rocky and Adrian. The funny thing is, we never see it, but Guy and Ice go on a few dates between now and issue 45, which is the second date. Huh, that's very interesting to think about. So yeah, there is some off-screen opportunities for Guy and Ice to sort of build a relationship that isn't quite as icky. So that's interesting to think about. Thank you, Michael. Then we heard from Damian Whiter from the English Embassy, and he says, Justice League America number 28, let's start with a cover. This is one of Kevin McGuire's best. There's so much characterization. I'm sure all the pervy guys are based on real people. Only McGuire would go out of his way to feature a real Batman t-shirt, JLGL, PBHN. Uh, I also love the perspective shot of the theater. You mentioned before that McGuire tends to avoid backgrounds on his covers, but when they are there, he really goes to town. I also love the use of the Dark Knight Return-style hoodlums looking down over Guy and Ice menacingly. I'm glad you mentioned that, Damian. And this is Shaq. I don't know that we actually stated that those guys definitely look like, like you said, the hoodlums from Dark Knight Returns. They totally do. All right, now back into Damien's letter. He says, they're colored so well. I'm sure this must be a Bob LaRose job. The use of so many different light sources really works and leads your eye around the image. I also loved the trash can UPC box, which leads into Todd Klein's cover lettering. Again, he's showcasing so much diversity on one cover, from guys' balloons that show the classic Gaspar-esque bounce to using the old Orzakowski trick of small letters in a big balloon. Everybody brought their A game to this cover. Now, onto the story, I'm pretty sure this is a classic fill-in story. The actual Mike McCone pages in no way reference current continuity. In fact, they feel pre-invasion to me. The fire in this story is not recovering from illness, and her characterization feels more in line with her first appearance in the book than how she's developed. This is further supported by the use of the names Green Flame and Ice Maiden, which I never noticed until Shag pointed it out. They were renamed Fire and Ice during the Apocalypse story. This really might have sat in a drawer for six months or so waiting for Ty to go on a holiday. Interesting, Damien. That would make a lot of sense if this was a fill-in issue sitting in the desk. Hmm. He goes on to say, Guy is an arsehole, but I really feel that they present his behavior as performative. He is being a jerk because he thinks that's how a man should behave. They very much show him as a character who is ashamed of real feelings and pretends that he doesn't care even though he does. This has been touched on in previous issues and is developed later. He is damaged, but not irredeemably. Hey, nice use of that word, Damien. 
Then Damien continues, My final comment on JLI concerns page two, which really stands out in the light of Shag and Angie's discussion of the JLE. Oberon makes a joke about fire being hot, and he immediately apologizes. She responds with a flirty line indicating possible interest, but also showing that she's happy with that kind of stuff. This stands in contrast to Wally's comments to Kara and JLE, which are not accepted. It really underlines the situations that are different, and that the writers knew that. Hmm, interesting way to look at the two in contrast. Thank you, Damien. Then on to Justice League Europe number four, because this issue really showcases Bart's ears. I know from reading interviews with Kevin McGuire that he was encouraged to step away from Giffen's layouts when he thought he could better pace the sequence, and I feel like there are a couple sequences that are more Bart's ears than Giffen this time. I'm particularly thinking of the Pumpkin Man fight scene. You know, Damien, that kind of jives with some of the articles we've seen from Bart's ears about working from Giffen's layouts and how sometimes he didn't always follow them. Hmm. Well, thank you, Damien. As always, you bring such interesting thoughts to the conversation. Up next is Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He has many shows he's on, including Supermates, which they're right now going through their annual House of Franklinstein, which you've got to be checking out. Plus, he's on a whole bunch of other shows, and he's a past guest of this show. Chris says, I'm not sure how this issue would go over nowadays, but I don't think there's anything overly offensive in any era of the Justice League that needs too much defense. I know, quote, of its time isn't an excuse for some elements of entertainment, which are hard to swallow now, but I don't think the creators ever went too far with this here. Except maybe with Wally West. Ange is right. Wally tended to jump in bed with any willing lady in his own comic, but he wasn't usually the aggressor in the situation, or this aggressive anyway. The Justice League titles continue to showcase exaggerated funhouse mirror versions of the characters in the other DCU titles, and the divide just gets bigger as the series progresses. I'm not judging this as good or bad, I'm just stating it as an observation. Then Chris goes on to say, the only other artist who could draw metal as well as Bart Sears, and who got there first was Bob Layton, and his groundbreaking work on Iron Man is both penciler and mostly inker. That's a good observation, Chris. Layton is amazing with metal as well. Then Chris says, I agree. Power Girl was quite unlikable in her earliest all-star appearances, as written by Jerry Conway. She softened up a bit once Paul Levitz came on, but don't forget, Keith Giffen was the artist on the all-star series. So this is his Power Girl, too. He helped shape the character, even if he was heavily inked by Wally Wood. You know, Chris, that's a great observation. I didn't think about that. Keith Giffen was there, drawing those earliest appearances of Power Girl. So yeah, so his version of Power Girl might be kind of steeped in her earliest appearances. Then to follow up on Chris's comments, we heard from Symbol Pending, a Power Girl blog. They write, to play devil's advocate, you could say that Power Girl was just very confident and sure of herself, though her bickering with Wildcat did come out of nowhere, though. Yeah, this is Shaggy. You know, I think I need to read those early appearances of Power Girl and All-Star issues. I've got the actual issues, multiple copies, and I've got the trade paperback. I just need to pull them back out and read those again, I think, to refresh my memory. Then we heard from Justin Steiner. He goes, this is the first time in a long time I could listen to an episode when it came out. Hooray for being caught up. Well, welcome to 2019, Justin. <laughs> and he goes on to say, fun stuff all around with great guests and a lot of JL talk. And he says, you can count me in as a Primal Force fan too, Shag. I even had letters printed in that book. Oh, that's awesome, Justin. I did hear from a couple of different folks across the web that are also Primal Force fans. Sorry if I was too harsh in my comment, folks. I love Primal Force, but they take a lot of ribbing. Then we heard from Max Traver, who says, I was really put off by Guy's actions back when this book came out and thought it was the first time Giffen and Dimatteis were pushing Guy's personality too far in the pursuit of a gag. I enjoyed a lot of the rest of the issue and didn't mind Mike McCone's work as much as the others seemed to. Speaking of art, I never really liked Bart Sears' style. In fact, back in the day, I bought Justice League Europe in spite of his art, not because of it. Looking back on the work now, I like it even less than I used to. I'm left wishing that Linda Medley had launched the book, as I'm one of the apparently few who enjoyed her work on the league. 
You know, that's really interesting, Max. I looked back at some of Linda Medley's Justice League at work, and it's really strong, actually. But I did look sort of chronologically, and I see that she actually won't appear on a Justice League book for a few more months. So having her launch Justice League Europe, I'm not sure it would have been possible just based on the timing. However, I do like her artwork, and I think I would have liked to see more of it, and I'm looking forward to covering the issues that she does in the future. Then we heard from Jeff R. He says, okay, here's the question. How old is Power Girl at any given point in time? At this point, thousands of years. But I mean, what effective age is she? It really seems to vary a lot. I mean, pre-crisis, she's probably very young, age appropriate to be flirting and canoodling with Firestorm. But in the JLE, she's always read to me to be significantly older than the rest of the two teams, except for maybe Captain Adam and Dimitri, like well past 30 among these 20-somethings. Then Symbol Pending chimed in again and says, it's complicated. I believe it's stated at some point that she's about a decade older than Supergirl, so about 30-ish. But as she's the same person as the Earth 2, she's probably much older. Hmm, that's a great question. I always get the sense, and this is Shag speaking, I always get the sense that Power Girl's about 30-ish. That's that's where I put her in my mindset, which is older than a lot of these folks. Older than Wally, that's for sure. Um, maybe a tiny bit older than Blue Beetle. Probably the same age as Elongated Man. Stuff like that, but I definitely kind of see her as one of the older folks on the team. Then we heard from Rob Kelly from the Firewater Podcast Network. He's my hetero life partner and host of shows like MASHCAST and the upcoming Super Friends comic podcast, which is going to be called For All Mankind. Rob says, great guests on this one. You probably won't top it until around episode 34 or 35. Hmm, wonder what he might be alluding to. Then we heard from Everton Vieira do Carmo. He says, I have my Brazilian edition of the story and I really don't find it so problematic. The thing about Guy is he's a morally wrong character and that's why you like him. You don't approve of his actions, but... But being a fictional character, you like to see what he does. This description also fits the Punisher. And he says, my problem with this issue is that the characters go on a date while Beetle is in critical condition at the hospital. Great friends. Then he goes on to talk about Justice League Europe number four. He calls it my favorite edition because we witnessed the first successful mission of the Justice League Europe. And with the participation of Animal Man, and there are still some people who say that he didn't do much in the league. Of course, he didn't have much of a stake, but it's not his fault there are no elephants in the sewer. Anyway, it's great to see Buddy in the league where he can have a rest from the bizarre things that happen to him in his own book and even show that he's a funny guy. Oh, you're absolutely right, Everton. But he got some great jokes in the last issue. In fact, I think he won the Bwahaha Award. So uh, uh, I love Buddy in the books. It makes me so happy. And it just makes me even sadder to think we're going to lose him in about eight issues. All right, up next is the 108th Sage. 108th writes, I too was mystified how Ice ever voluntarily spent time alone with Guy Gardner again after this. And now I'm kind of skeptical that they'll be able to bring these two together as a couple without Ice feeling out of character. You know, that's a fair point, 108th. But uh, I did like the point made earlier that there are going to be a couple more encounters with Ice and Guy that we don't see where they go out on potential dates. So I think maybe we can sort of fill in whatever story we need to there to figure out why there's sort of a a redemption of Guy Gardner. And of course, that's me just creatively writing things to try and make the story work, but it's always fun to do our own retcons, right? As for our trip to Bialya, I enjoyed the issue rather a lot, right up until the time jump, after which I began speculating that the Queen Bee mind whammied them all, and they thought they had purposefully and successfully held her over the proverbial barrel and extracted all those concessions. But when she shot the Dominator, I thought, wait, are they serious? This is how they choose to respond to a world leader who they have firsthand knowledge uses mind control to corrupt heroes? The power of diplomatic immunity by way of too big to fail? But by the end of the issue and the promise of Sapphire Stag, I was back on board. As for the misogyny displayed for some reason, I had fewer problems with the Justice League America issue than the Justice League Europe issue, which I'm pretty sure is because of, quote, this is textbook guy, end quote. But it feels like an exaggerated, immature version of Wally. As for the, it'd be different if she was Florida 
responding back or laughing about a comment, I simply say that often many women feel like that's the only response they can make without suffering some sort of further harassment or potential danger. Even if it's just social feedback of the bitch you couldn't take a joke labels. Power Girl had clearly left that stage of life behind if she ever had it. You know, 108th, that's a great observation. And I got to say, it really is difficult to evaluate these characters' behaviors, especially for me. I mean, there's multiple factors going on. First, we're using a 2019 lens to view the actions of characters from over 30 years ago. So it was a different time. That creates its own sense of problems. Second, these characters are fictional. We can't ask them how they feel about the situation. While their actions might be reprehensible, the writers were aware that these weren't real people suffering, and they were trying to make the audience laugh. You know, the third, and, and possibly the most important thing to remember, is that I'm not that bright. I do my best to be, you know, enlightened about the fairness to all, but I'm still a work in progress, as you can tell. So I, I always appreciate the insight of the guests and what you folks leave in the comments section. Please keep your thoughts coming, folks, on how these characters are treating each other. It's very, very informative, and I appreciate us all discussing it openly. So thank you very much. All right, on to the next comment, Liz Ann Oswald. You can check out her YouTube channel. Liz says, impressive podcast, most impressive. Well, thank you, Liz. I appreciate that. Liz goes on to say, Ice acts more like fire in this. To me, fire was more the smart aleck, and Ice was the nice one, but naive character. I did like her here and in Bo Smith's run on Guy Gardner Warrior. Oh, man. Liz, I love Guy Gardner Warrior by Bo Smith. It's such a fun comic. Then Liz goes on to say about Justice League Europe, I should have bought more of these. Cool fight. I like Jack-O-Lantern well enough, but why didn't Buddy use the power of the mouse? Keen sense of hearing and rely especially on their senses of smell. And when they can burrow, they must be a bit strong. And I saw one run really fast once. Not in the flash range, but still. Hmm, that's a fair point. The mouse powers probably could have come in handy. Thanks, Liz. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. Jimmy writes in, Greetings from the Irish Embassy as we gather at this dark time to mourn the passing of Daniel Cormac, otherwise known as Jack-O-Lantern, survived by his faithful sidekick, Fergus of the Fur de Raga. Daniel had turned to the dark side in his later years, but we should still remember the bravery he's shown, both as a hero of Ireland and as a valued member of the Global Guardians. Uh, sorry, ambush bug, what were you trying to say in my ear? I'm trying to eulogize Jack-O-Lantern. What? What's this about Kevin Dooley and Justice League Quarterly? Jack is what? Uh, never mind, folks, about Jack. Wait, let's talk about the podcast instead. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I always appreciate your comical bits. It brings some much-needed levity to the podcast. Jimmy goes on to say, JLA number 28 was a fun break from the Beatles saga, although I would agree it does look like a filler that was repurposed. He goes on to say, the use of Black Hand is very good, and this will get another callback later down the line in JLA. Hmm, I don't remember that. You're going to have to tell me what that is, Jimmy. I'm really interested. Then he says, Justice League Europe number 4 was a solid end of the Queen Bee saga. As I intimated earlier, this may not be the last of Jack-O-Lantern, although given the lack of a body shown, it was obvious that the writers were setting up an opening for Jack to return in some other manner. And he says, one could argue that the ending was a bit strange. The JLE had evidence that the Queen Bee was involved with the Dominators, and all that had happened was that both sides back away from each other. However, given that the Justice League is now operating like a nation-state, one could argue that this was a diplomatic way to settle this. A detente, if you will, between the League and Bialya. Although then again, when the League pressured Queen Bee to sever the connection with the Dominator, did they mean for her to kill him? Interesting questions abound. Hmm. Thank you, Jimmy. Then we heard from Tim Price, who's a professional podcast guest, in fact, a past guest of this show, and if you recall, Tim writes these really long dissertations that I read to my daughter, which helps her sleep at night. So, as always, much appreciated, Tim. He really came through this month. He says, for JLA number 28, a big point is how much I liked Ice in this story. She's actually willing to give Guy the benefit of the doubt, because she's a good person. She has great one-liners,
one-liners about Guy's imagination and his suit. She blasts Guy with her power, showing she means business. The, quote, just let him shoot line had compassion for the black hand. Without her, this would have just been Guy being awful. But her portrayal makes the story shine. I've said it before that Ice is one of my favorite JLIers, and this issue is a great example. Then on to Justice League Europe number four, I honestly hadn't paid attention to Bart Sears drawing wrinkles on the Queen Bee's face before. Wow, what a difference that makes in her character. Thank you for pointing it out. Huh, well, you're welcome. Uh, then he goes on to say, Wally's portrayal in number four reminds me of Herb Tarlick, played by Frank Bonner, from WKRP in Cincinnati. He was constantly harassing Jennifer, played by Lonnie Anderson. One of the greatest moments was when Jennifer agreed to go out with Herb, and he basically fell apart, like a dog chasing a car. He didn't know what to do when he caught it. Please forgive the analogy of a woman to a car for this example. Wally always read like that back in the day. Is it excusable behavior? Of course not. But I suspect that if Kara ever became the aggressor, Giffen might have had Wally as chickening out. Wow, Tim, I mean, describing Wally in comparison to Herb Tarlick is brilliant. I mean, that is a really, really good example of, of how awful Wally's behavior is. And for you kids out there who don't know who Herb Tarlick is, first of all, you're too young to be reading comic books. Oh, my goodness. Second of all, go out, find KRP, whether it be on some streaming channel or on YouTube, whatever, and look up Herb Tarlick, and that is Wally to a T. Then Tim comes back to say braces, because remember last episode, we talked about the fact that the very first issue of Justice League Europe had a big stinking clue of the word braces as this guy died. He said that one word, and it was never followed up on again. So Tim says, braces. Nothing in these four issues explains it at all. If it was explained elsewhere, I never saw it. With Giffen's loose plotting, my thought is that he planted as a hook for Ralph's detective skills, but didn't have a plan what to do with it, and the story went in a different direction than he thought. So he dropped it. Could very well be. Then we heard from our buddy Ward Hill Terry. He says, I never cared for Guy Gardner, and this issue just enforces my feelings. He destroys private property and cruelly abuses ice. It made the humor feel really forced. And he says, Giffen and Dimatteis never let previously established characters get in the way of their humor. For instance, Wally West. The Wally in Justice League Europe is nothing at all like Wally written by Marv Wolfman in New Teen Titans, or Carrie Bates in The Flash, or even Bob Haney. Okay, any Bob Haney characterization bears little resemblance to any other author's interpretation of said character. Nevertheless, I wish that I could digitally manipulate the images and put Catherine Colbert in the scene with Power Girl and Wally's Flash in the scene with Captain Adam. Is what Catherine's doing not sexual harassment? Does she get a pass because she's smoother at it than Wally is? Is there a gender double standard? Of course there was then, but none of the commenters here in 2019 have touched on Catherine's actions. Okay, so this is Shag. I'm going to step in for a second. And I'm just talking off the top of my head here. You know, I think there is a difference between Catherine's actions and Wally's. I mean, both are flirting. Absolutely. However, Captain Adams never demonstrated any interest in keeping Catherine at arm's length. They've had a friendly relationship. Flirting is a natural thing for people to do when they're interested in somebody. Now, the question becomes, do you take the social cues that indicate to you that the flirting is not appreciated? In this case, Captain Adam in no way showed Catherine that he didn't appreciate it. Uh, in fact, he, I think he probably... You know, I imagine his medal was blushing, if you will. So I think that's the main difference is that Power Girl, whether through communication or body language or whatever, has made it very clear to Wally that she doesn't appreciate the flirting. And his goes beyond flirting. I mean, it's pretty sleazy what he's doing. Whereas Catherine flirted at the captain and she got no sense that he was disinterested. So that's just me talking off the top of my head. I could be out of line here. Folks, feel free to drop something in the comments on your thoughts on that. Then back into Ward Hill Terry's message, he says, one more thing about Power Girl. Her personal seemed to be shorthanded rather quickly as angry woman. I recall that her attitude in her initial appearance in All-Star was to show irritation and frustration at inaction and anger at insults. When the JSA would hem and haw over what course of action to take, Power Girl would get quickly unpleasant. She's a person of action. You know, good points, Ward. Again, I'm going to have to go back, I think, and reread those All-Star comics and see how Power Girl's portrayed there and see, you know, maybe if that's a through line to what we're seeing here. 
But I'm not going to argue they do often characterize Power Girl as the, quote, angry woman stereotype, which isn't nice. But they also give her a lot of other things to do in the stories as well. So we'll see as this plays out over the coming months. Then we hear from Mark Ross, who goes by Cluck Trent. <laughs> Mark says, I hadn't read the JLI originally. It didn't look like the Justice League to me back then. But joining DC Universe makes it so easy to read them and catch up. So I binged the issues in your episodes in the past couple of months and have now caught up. I'm enjoying the issues and love your passion for it. Oh, well, thank you, Mark. Welcome to the family. Then heard from Mike Zomkowski. Uh, he cracked a joke. He says, he cracked a joke referencing the date between Guy and Ice. And he goes, what not to do in a first date? Everybody knows that's the fourth date. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Then we heard from Roger Preeb who says, it's a great issue. I just picked up the first appearance of Ice yesterday in Super Friends number nine. Congratulations, Roger. That's great. Also received some nice messages from folks like Mike Gonzalez, Super Lad Kid on Twitter, and Jeremy Daw. All right, folks, this is the part of the show where I thank everyone who shared our show on their social media, on Facebook and Twitter. As I said, every single month, I know it is a long list of names. It's like reading a weird phone book. However, these folks showed their support and promoted the show. They're getting the word out there, which is helping to attract new listeners all the time. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals. And this time out, we're looking at nearly 70 names of folks who helped promote last episode. If you want to be on this list, all you got to do is retweet it or share it on Facebook, folks. All right, my thanks to Al Girding, Between the Pages, Billy Delicious, The Blue and Gold Facebook Group, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, David Capoon, David West, DC Now, a DC fan podcast, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Dr. Pop Culture from the Bowling Green State University, Ed Moore Jr., Fan Film Fridays podcast, Jen X-Wing podcast, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, The Headcast Network, Holy Academia, Into the Weird, Jack Rocha, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Jeff Messer, Jeremy Daw, Justin Steiner, Keechy Baker, Connell, Luke Dobb, Mark Baker Wright, Mark's Mess Podcasts, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthias McBride, Matthew Thomas Cody, Max Romero, Max Traver, Michael Kramer, Nathaniel Devon Sanford, Nuno Darte, Pablo Lamoth, Paul Kean, Paul Monk, Read More Comics, Retro Revelations, Richard Field. Rob Kelly and his accounts from Aquaman Shrine, MASH Podcast, Pod Dylan, and Treasury Comics. Scott Tipton and his Blast Off Comics account. Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast. Siskoid. Slangword Scott. Super Lad Kid. Symbol Pending. The Flash at Retro Cabal. Tim Price. Warlock Thanos Podcast and Willie Yarbrough. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Folks, you are awesome. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we are building together is fantastic. So if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably Scott Tipton or Dr. Ange's fault. So if so, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. Remember, please keep those cards and letters coming. Best places over on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there in the show post. Over on Facebook, you can find us as Justice League International and Bahaha Podcast. Podcast or on Twitter at JLI Podcast. Of course, there's also the email, which is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Scott and Dr. Ange for helping me cover JLA number 28 and JLE number 4. And thanks to you listeners for making such a great collection of feedback and such great discussion from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. When we come back, we'll catch up with Al and see how his visit to the Florida voting precincts went. Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? 
It's For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run, plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my super friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. If you rebuild it, they will come. They burned it down. If you rebuild it, they will come. You didn't hear them? Thank you, pardon. The voices. Pete. If you rebuild it, they will go. They blew it up. If you rebuild it, they will come. They demolished it. If you rebuild it, they will go. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The House of Frankenstein lives. You see, uh, we began a project few years ago but unfortunately it was it was interrupted and we're most anxious to take it up again in september and october the fire and water podcast network presents a supermates tradition covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures i must find more victims before my work is done you need look no further vampires we'll take the bad jet to the hall of justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. What are you, crazy? Jack Nicholson. Oh, just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God, a wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's, sir. Uh, See what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor of medicine, law, and physics. To the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screens at the scenic House of Frankenstein where terror is only a listen away. <laughs> okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear Al is back from the Florida Embassy. Uh, everything go okay? Do you avoid all the alligators and such? It, mostly. I mean, everything seemed okay. I mean, we got these big X's to put on the ground. We thought it was like, let people know where to line up, but everyone who stood on them got crushed by a giant boulder that appeared out of nowhere. Ugh. Kind of gross. That Acme company, they're just not reliable. Oh my goodness. But ironically, it was pretty funny. So, you know. <laughs> There's a little puff of smoke, too. So, folks, my thanks to Al for appearing on this episode of the show. Al, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Well, like we said before, I am the host of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. And um, if you're not sure what it's about, well, it's about the Marvel characters Adam Warlock and Thanos. I mean, it's (laughs) right there in the title. There's no confusion. Right. Obviously, you can find it on pretty much any podcatcher. Just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos where what pops up. Uh, The main place to find it is uh, the Tumblr page, Resurrections Adam Warlock. 
adamwarlock.tumblr.com. And of course, you can always find me on Twitter at AdamThanosPod. I talk about more comics than just Marvel Cosmic. So bother me there. So is that, uh, for the people at home's edification, is this an index show or do you jump all over the continuity? Bit of A, bit of B. Okay. We are doing the Bronze Age stuff going forward. And we're at this point of us having this conversation. And for the Bronze Age stuff, we're getting near the end of the 70s stuff. So like Warlock 15 is coming up. And then, you know, Death of Adam and Thanos and all that fun stuff. But we've also jumped ahead and we're doing episodes on Infinity Countdown and also been doing some of the more recent Jim Starlin Thanos hardcovers. Oh, okay. Fun. Fun. A little bit of bounce around and even some Golden Age stuff with Death appearing. Well, sooner or later you're going to have to tackle that 90s stuff and I hope you've packed a lot of booze to help you get through. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, Al, thanks so much for doing the show. I sincerely appreciate it. It's been an absolute blast. Folks, that is going to do it. Come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 29 and Justice League Europe number 5. We'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works by now. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Al. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something something of it? it?